Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing Severance and After Yang, two futuristic works about what it means to be a person. What does it mean to be a person, Jenny? Oh, that's that's a hard question. It's a hard question. What did it mean to be a person this week? <laughs> means a lot it of different things. It means a lot of different things. Um, oh, but for me this week, it meant continuing on living, uh, <laughs> just as surviving a st- as a state of being. Yes, yes. Uh, I gotta say, like daylight savings time is really kicking my ass today oh, in yeah. particular. So, uh, listeners may not know, we record these on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. So I really just like woke up today in a state of disorientation and yeah. exhaustion spring forward <laughs> how's your week yeah. going otherwise it's going really well oh wow okay oh my you. god um this is no, rare it's good. It's, yeah. i know it's super rare i'm trying to do this thing where i acknowledge the good yeah just as much as the bad so All right, then. Good, for um, good for you yeah i i i got my script outline peer reviewed so mm-hmm. did that and it went really well so, oh, oh, I'm so, so glad. I'm so glad. Cheers, it went well. babe. Yeah. Thanks. Other than that, I've been getting really excited with some of the trailers that I've been watching mm. that have been like trickling in this week. Anything you know, good? like, well, we've seen a couple of the Atlanta trailers, and that's like, I think we're a week or two out from getting new Atlanta episodes, mm-hmm. right? And then, um, Bullet Train, Bullet Train trailer, yeah. And then, like, are you a Better Call Saul fan? Do you ever watch? It? Honestly, I. Yeah, have missed out on a lot of very like pivotal tv and film i'd say in my childhood one of which is one of which is breaking bad and and everything in that universe do not worry i was very late to the game i do highly recommend doing breaking bad one point in your life before i know it really is a (laughs) i need to get around to that for for those that do subscribe to Breaking Bad World slash Better Call Saul World, uh, the trailer for that came out as well, and I'm really really excited about that. So that's been <laughs> nice. my week, really. Yeah, nice, nice. All you know, positive. Oh, All good things. Just, yeah, just gonna wait summary. for the impending bad things to happen now. No, you know, no, we're we're only going up. <laughs> okay, uh, is our new our new <laughs> motto right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. To bring us down a little bit immediately <laughs> after that, uh, what did you watch this week, Pellen? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this week I watched Severance. Uh, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's a show that's created by Dan Erickson, and it's directed by Ben Stiller and Aoife McArdle. So this is basically like a sci-fi workplace psychological thriller. There's a lot going on. It stars like very big names, um, such as Adam Scott, you know, love him. Love him. Um, so he's party down Parks and Rec uh, alumni. And um, just casually, John Turturro, Christopher Walken, mm. Patricia Arquette. And then there are some new faces that we know and maybe love, such as Zach Cherry from that one episode of Succession where Roman goes oh. to, uh, to do his like little training oh, thing. Yeah, it's that guy. I didn't notice it's that. It's that guy, yeah. And then also uh, Britt Lauer. So if you watch the trailer, you get a pretty good idea of what this is about. But in case you haven't gotten to that point yet, it's basically about the employees of a mysterious department in a mysterious company called Lumen Industries. These guys have decided to sever, like bifurcate their work memories from their non-work memories. It's an irreversible, apparently (laughs) irreversible uh, procedure. And this means that they get to work on the floor, uh, the severance floor. So the procedure's called severance. They work on the severance floor, hence the show's name, severance. So 
the way that it works is that they enter with their outside, a- aka their outie, into an elevator. When they go up the elevator to the severance floor, they are innies, um, and they shift over to their basically their their work personality, which is different. So they have like split personalities in their existence. So we are about five episodes in. Are you caught up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a nine episode series and I'm pretty confident that this is going to be good all the way up until the end. So yeah. this is a huge recommendation from me. What about you? Yeah, I'm really, really loving it so far. Like I haven't felt as captivated mm-hmm. and just like eager to get to the next episode of a TV series in, in a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So it's really feeling that like, uh, almost like prime time Sunday night feeling, even though it comes out on Fridays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Very gripping and, uh, so much tension and like the, the way the camera work, the way the camera work plays into it. Yeah. Just like really high quality from what I'm seeing. And I'm so glad we have this in our TV diet right now. I completely agree. It is, I think, Apple TV's best series that they've gotten out so far. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would agree. And with that's that. including Ted Lasso. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> yes. to the Ted Lasso fans. Um, Honestly, when, when I heard that this was coming out and I heard that like Ben Stiller was going to direct it and had like co-signed it to, to be produced and everything, I knew it was going to be good because I have seen his first TV series, which was limited on Showtime, uh, Escape at Danamora, which oh. if you have Showtime, I really recommend watching it. It's like, it's got a very nuts, uh, cast as well. It's got Benicio del Toro, Paul Dano, mm. Patricia Arquette also. It's an incredible limited series, like truly really well directed as well. I missed like Ben Stiller sort of crossing over. I knew he, I knew he had like basically been doing more behind the scenes, like producing. I didn't know the extent or the, I guess, like abilities of his directing side. Yeah. He's a bloody good director. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like, I haven't been excited. I complete, uh, like for a while, I completely agree. I think Yellow Jackets kind of gives you that week to week mystery drama. Mm -hmm. Uh, but like this is just on another level to me in terms Mm -hmm. of honestly the intelligence level <laughs> that it's trying to like communicate uh in the subtext and also yeah, in the text, you know it's quite like cerebral in mm-hmm. in a sense although it doesn't like hit you over the head with it like it's more like encoded into the dna rather yeah. than you know explicitly said as some sort of like didactic uh dialogue it's it's just a part of the show the very concept itself yeah um so our protagonist mark who is played by adam scott he is essentially two people <laughs> and like it's really shout out to adam scott and his performance like you wouldn't think that he could kind of shift very subtly between these two personalities yeah. but he does such a good job of it and you know outside of lumen we know that mark has a sister he has a brother-in-law and that he's grieving his wife, and that he entered the severance program, honestly, much to the, not even protest, just to the bewilderment of the people around him, and the world, I guess. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, still seen as kind of like a taboo uh, yeah, like, state of being. Yeah, like, why why would you do that? But yeah. <laughs> for him, we find out it's because he basically doesn't want to think about th- his grief. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to take a break from it for seven hours a day. And, you know, the, the pilot... It starts with the information that this person called PC, who's a co-worker of the team that we see, and apparently Mark's best friend within uh, within Lumen, like his in- his innie's best friend, mm-hmm. that he's just randomly abruptly left. And that a person called Heli, that's played by Britt Lauer, that's PC's replacement. So we see her enter into Severance for the first time. Like just there's that really like stunning shot of her on the conference table. 
um mm-hmm. and mark's voice which we don't know when we first see her is mark voice mark's voice introducing her into the world so it, it's a format that we all know and love you know someone that's been there a while and someone that's completely brand new to a workplace which is a great device for workplace uh, dramas and comedies uh but this is a little bit different because helly's innie hates 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 uh being there and like is bewildered by what is going on she doesn't understand the company she doesn't understand the work she wants to get out and it's just like this perfect tension uh between her and the rest of the team that seem pretty they feel pretty static about being there honestly uh they don't really question they've they've accepted it's their reality Yeah. yeah and like through the team there's total four of them there's different representations each person kind of plays a different version of you know the person at work like the workplace personality that everyone knows and is familiar with so you know like john Turturro's character irving he's kind of like the bootlicking knock like he's the one that is obsessed with the company really believes in what they're doing uh really wants to follow protocol at all times is not afraid to snitch if that's what it takes um Mm -hmm. and then like you've got zach cherry's uh character dylan He's kind of like the cynical perk chaser. Like, he's just like, I'm just here to get the waffle parties. Like, because if you do well, you get a waffle party. Yeah, like, there's no meaning in the work except, uh, you know, something you can, like, sort of game and use it to get what little pleasures you can in this world. And then Mark, uh, Mark's innie, his personality is kind of like the perpetual line tower. It, it seems like he's questioning it or it seems like he has a mind of his own, but he just doesn't want to deal with it. So he yeah, just kind of keeps it pushing. Yeah, he mm-hmm. does not. Yeah, he's definitely not a wave maker. So it's been, it's been interesting watching that. I think my favorite thing about this show, uh, when we talk about subtext or, or, you know, more overt text, <laughs> um, I love what this show does creatively to, to communicate like truths about work and it's interesting watching this right now because this show is about essentially the work-life balance right mm-hmm. it's about literally yeah literally yeah like so, like people creating a clean split between themselves so that they can deal with both without muddying the waters um of of anything and uh, it's fascinating that this is a show that we're watching right now after like two and a bit years of of a pandemic that just completely blurred that line but a lot of critics have like made the connection between the, you know this show talking about that split and also the great resignation which which is something that i think happened like summer of last year uh which was like uh, millions of people quitting their jobs <laughs> to either find another job or to not go back to work or to figure something else out for themselves i think we i think everybody started to feel very jaded about this thing called work when we were all collectively going through something so traumatic and collectively grieving uh, so much. And it's like, what does, what does it matter? <laughs> like, what does it matter that, you know, I have to show up to work or I have to like, I don't know, get up and leave and like put my life at risk and or be on Zoom for five hours a day while something as wild as what is going on with the world is happening right now. Yeah, so- definitely at least among like, um, especially white collar professional like occupations, like, where people were allowed to work from home, they they yeah. are they do have like a few more options. They can maybe potentially quit or mm-hmm, think of mm-hmm. switching work. And then I think also on like the other end, maybe we did see more high profile attempts at like unionization among mm-hmm. like you know yep. Starbucks workers or like yeah, uh, exactly. hospitality retail. Like yeah, like across uh, I think a lot of different industries and 
blue collar, white collar, however you want to call these different lines of work, mm-hmm. there is at least some sense that there's a kind of shift in consciousness of the way people are thinking about work. Yeah, which how it connects back to this TV series is that it is deeply cynical about work um, mm-hmm. and about what it means and what it means in people's lives in general. So I just wanted to point out some uh, pretty interesting ways in which it tries to kind of represent these truths about work that I mentioned earlier. The The first thing is the department that Mark and his team works at on the severance floor. It's called something like macro data refinement. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it hilarious because what does that even mean? And yeah. no one working there knows what they mean. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what it's for. Yeah. Um, they literally have no idea what it is that they're doing seven hours a day. Like they especially don't know it outside of Lumen, but they definitely don't know it inside of Lumen either. And that's yeah. hilarious because there are like one of the jokes of like, especially a corporate environment. There are so many departments that you just don't, the words that they use to name these departments, no idea what they mean, no idea what it finally like is ultimately trying to succeed in. And then on the, like the darker end of it, they have something called the break room, uh, which sounds fun, but is not in, in the context of this show because it's where they go to get punished. And it's something that they deeply want to avoid. But what it does is it's basically a room that they go into and they have to repeat like a self-flagellating script until they decide that they, that, that they actually mean it. And it's just, yeah, it's that, you know, when they say break room, it's just there to break you. It's, it, I find it very symbolic of how like workplace punishment in general is, which is basically putting yourself into a submissive state. Yeah, it's, it's very depressing. Just really expertly done in terms of like trying to really visually, you know, like when you, when you do it to the extreme, it says something true about the reality, you know? Another another interesting thing that they do is uh, Keir Egan, who's like, and the Egan family, the, the creators of Lumen, they're like this mysterious family uh, that created this like mysterious company that how much they're idolized. Um, I think like John Turturro's character is so obsessed with Keir Egan and the whole like Egan philosophy and like the script and the Bible or like basically that they have. Um, so I find that interesting because, you know, we as a society, we tend to idolize people like that, you know, whether it's like the creator of Disney, Bezos, like, yeah, Silicon Bezos, Valley, like any tech heads. person. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so. in this show, they're like literally deified. Like they, um, yeah. they have the whole museum dedicated to them. Yeah. They, their word is scripture, basically. Yeah. Uh, um, and anyway, so <laughs> I wanted to talk a little about, a uh, little bit about the character of PT. We mm-hmm. see his character in, in the first couple of episodes in you know so far and his character i think gets really to the crux of many workplace dilemmas which is like he shows up and uh on the in the outside world and tells mark that he has been reintegrated so he's put his two personalities back together again and that he needs mark's help to expose lumen because lumen's up to something and we don't know what it is but mark has to stay within lumen to help him And it's just, I find that so fascinating because like, you know, as far as we know, the outie version of each person does have the choice to never work there again. Basically what they need to do though is if they walk away from it, then they discard everything that they know because the innie has a set set of memories that they will never have access to. And it's almost like walking away and signing an NDA. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting because like that presents like a different kind of like very real life dilemma, which is, you know, do you just walk away from a terrible work uh, workplace and save yourself or do you ignore it 
and keep your head in the sand and keep working there? Or then obviously, do you try and help everybody and then put yourself at risk? Um, yeah, I think that like ethical question and the whole question of ethics and, and morals in this is is sort of the most interesting to me as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, like yeah. w- like you said, like you you basically can choose to be ignorant of everything that's going on. That's that's what you're doing by undergoing severance. You yeah, you exactly legally agree to uh, keep your eyes and ears shut and never have to think at all about anything that you're doing yeah, for yeah. eight hours a day, anything that the company is doing, what your role may be in that. Uh, and that is like yeah. a real draw in some sense. Like some people I'm sure would, would jump at the chance to turn off their, their brain for the entire work day. And then yeah. the next time they open their eyes, it's, you know, five o'clock uh, time for happy mm-hmm. hour. Like you get yeah. to live your, your separate lives these way. And it almost feels like you gain a lot of this time back because you don't have to deal with the tedium of work you don't have to recover from the mental uh you know exhaustion of it but yeah what does that mean ethically and like yeah what are you subjecting your yourself to which i find really interesting through through heli yeah Yeah, and like what her outside self does to her inside self yeah it's fascinating just her is is she's such an a narrative force in terms of trying to figure out the mystery behind everything there's a lot of mystery in this and i think that's like one of the downsides of this is we're we're in the middle of the season right now and i think there's a lot of unanswered questions Mm -hmm. um but i'm patient enough because i know and i've heard um that it does speed towards basically i think one critic said it speeds towards the brick wall at mm-hmm. the end of this uh season so i'm excited to see where it goes but mm-hmm. like with heli especially like she it's wild how dogged she is in her need to get out but then it's yeah. fascinating that her outie is also just as stubborn yeah which kind of tells you something about her personality mm-hmm. but it what's interesting is like you know w- we know why mark is there and because of him we understand that there must be something particular about each one of these people as to why they would agree to do this. And mm-hmm. it must be something meaningful. And then I think Heli is obviously the, the, the one that I wonder the most out of the, you know, the rest of the team as to why they're there, because she seems so adamant about staying within the severance program. Yeah. So to the point where, to yeah, to the point where she, you know, actually risks like real harm to yeah. her physical self. But yeah, I've, yeah. I've seen speculation that. She might be a member of the Egan family. She might be yeah. a journalist or an activist undercover. Um, yeah. I don't know. Some some theories floating around there. I'm really curious yeah, about or, this. Yeah, yeah. Or like she, she's trying to like work her way up the company and this is the only way that she knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, anyway, so so many unanswered questions, so much mystery. And I think it just kind of does a really good job of of presenting these questions and just kind of like... I don't know. It kind of feels like the writers are telling me to be patient and I'm trying to be patient. A mm-hmm. um, little bit restless to know a little bit more, but you can tell that this is like, it will go beyond just this season. I think they're shooting the second season right now. Oh, that's will great. Be. Yeah. So this is, you know, we talk about this and it sounds really depressing, but it is pretty funny too. So it is, yeah. I would say it's a dark comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like the <laughs> Mark's brother-in-law's book appearing within Lumen just <laughs> yeah. is so good. I feel like that's going to be that's going to be very very important. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm excited for how they're kind of slow dripping that one out. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about how the show looks because it is very particular. Yeah, from like I think the set design is the most noticeable thing about it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is, it captured this, the spirit and the look of basically a lot of, uh, corporate settings or the most extreme version of a corporate setting from what you would imagine from like mm-hmm. the, the eighties, the nineties, like these long, sterile hallways, these, yeah. uh, like cubicle desks set up in mm-hmm. these carpeted rooms and the computers look a certain way, the equipment, the, the chairs, the ceilings, like everything is, basically a corporate hell uh like yeah. the, like this sterile hell yeah it's it's very much like a callback to the past but also like a sleek uh even further sort of anonymized version looking to the you know forward it's it's a really interesting sort of contrast definitely and i think it's something called i didn't know that this is something that existed but my husband told me about it which is retrofuturism oh. um, ah. it's like a mm. it's like a certain type of design like there's a lot of like Erosaranen, like mid-century modern influence mm, yes. in the in the office, but it's extremely. I think like one of my favorite things about it is like in the pilot, you see Mark's character going into the office, and we follow him into the office and into the department, and he's just walking and walking and walking down yeah. multi and like you know in the Matrix, for example, when you're going from one one part of the Matrix to the next, there's that like bright white like corridor mm-hmm. that they're in. Um, and it's it's just that over and over and over again, and it's trying to depict this idea of like it's a maze, yeah. And these yeah. guys are like mice in a maze. Totally. It's just it's, it's just really well done. Um, and I think what's also cool is like the location of the outside world too. Um, yeah. So Ben Stiller is very familiar with upstate New York. Obviously, Escape from Danamora is set. It's it's the true story about the prison escape in Danamora, which is in upstate New York, and um. Yeah, just the way that he depicts the cookie cutterness of mm. the houses that Mark stays in, and I think it's like I think the town is called like Egan Town or like Kier Town or some shit. Like Definitely that. like ties to the the industry yeah. The company. Yeah, but like the houses are very cookie cutter, mm-hmm. and it's company houses, obviously, and that's why it's cookie cutter. And yeah, um, and yeah it's it kind of like it's sinister in a way. This whole it's super town, sinister, yeah. like yeah. yeah, the the cookie cutter houses, but also there's so much darkness like literal darkness this town gets almost zero light in the winter and just like these hulking trees and you don't know where anybody or anything might be hiding yeah Uh, Yeah. it's really terrifying in a way yeah and it gives you that feeling of like we're not we're still not in the real world we're still in some kind of stimulation and maybe it is maybe it is maybe yeah I just want to quickly give a sh- huge shout out to some of the performances that we didn't mention. Mm-hmm. Tramel Tillman, he plays Mr. Milchek. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know that, like, I'm being kind. This is my kind robot voice, but I'm yeah. actually super sinister and something very fucked up is going on. Yeah. Just expertly performed. Um, totally. And then also Deechan Luckman, who plays Miss Casey, who's like the wellness person. Again, mm-hmm. like just incredible face acting, just holding mm-hmm. still and giving like an uh, almost robotic uh, performance for the both of them you know like very uncanny valley very like just super eerie so yeah i highly highly recommend this This, i I think this is my favorite show out right now that i'm watching yeah Um, me too i'd say yeah it's like a fantastic first season i'm really excited for more um and you know if you still need a bit of convincing it's like a perfect combination between the films um office space eternal sunshine of a spotless mind and also The Conversation, which is Francis Ford Coppola's film. So if you like these three films, it's basically like a mashup of all of them. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's like a TV version of it. And what more could you want? I really recommend it. And what did you watch this week, Jenny? 
So staying within the realm of sci-fi in the future, I am going to talk about After Yang, which is streaming on Showtime and I believe playing in some theaters right now. Mm -hmm. So this is Kogonata's second film. uh, And you might remember him because we talked about his debut feature film, Columbus, in an earlier episode. And this movie in particular is based on a short story by Alexander Weinstein. So the gist of it is that a couple sometime in the future, like in some indeterminate time in the future, um, the couple consisting of Jake, played by Colin Farrell, and uh, Kira, played by Joni Turner-Smith, they find that their android sort of helper, Yang, played by Justin H. Mean, uh, who they bought secondhand to help their adopted daughter, Mika, played by Malaya Emma Chandravijaya, connect to her Chinese heritage. So the android uh, has become unresponsive and has basically reached the end of its life. Mm -hmm. And they know how important Yang is to Mika. Like, they call each other Guga and Meimei, which is Chinese for older brother and younger sister. Mm -hmm. They're that close. Mm -hmm. So Jake, for the whole movie, he tries to get Yang repaired. But along the way, he discovers that Yang had a whole other, basically, interior life, Mm -hmm. as well as outside life and, you know, life history that the family just never knew about. Yeah. So it's very much kind of like a a spin on a classic category of sci-fi techno-orientalism. I mean, there are a lot of movies that fit this, but basically... A lot of the future is entangled with Asian stuff, Asian people, Asian stuff, uh, Asian robots, Asian technology. You know, Jane, who wrote a really good piece, The New Yorker, she she said, uh, in these kind of techno-orientalist films, there's basically an ambient dread about Asian influence that gets expressed through an aesthetic sensibility rather than by representing or centering actual Asian characters. That's really interesting because that was something that I couldn't quite put my finger on and I didn't know that it was like a whole thing. So this is just explains a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And a lot of it traditionally has been like uh, Japan, like the rise of Japan, like mixing Tokyo with like other cities. Uh, But I think in recent years, some people have pointed out that there is a lot of anxiety about China in Mm -hmm. particular. So uh, we see that in this film too because there are, are some unspoken things about uh, China and like what kind of global conflict there was with China and yeah. like the the spies that maybe surveilling people from China or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it that's sort of the context in which this uh, film operates. So yeah, Pellin, I know you saw this actually a while ago. Uh, so what did you think of this? Yeah, I watched this when Sundance was doing their whole online stuff. So we ended up getting mm-hmm. tickets and watching it back then. So immediately after I watched it, I texted you to be like, I think you'll like this better than Columbus. Because <laughs> I liked it better than Columbus. Um, I mm-hmm. thought it was, I could see a... Pr- progression in Koganada's skill as a director however i did have my qualms with it um Mm -hmm. i think there are certain things that are great about it and then certain things that just i it just kind of bugged me um yeah i think the main takeaway being that it was i mean i think it was either too quiet in what it was trying to say or it was too heady in what it was trying to say and i couldn't quite figure out which of it it was so i'm excited to chat to you about it so we can maybe kind of you can maybe help Pin me. that down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. And like, uh, full disclosure, I did text Helen like immediately after I watched this and I had like basic summary of my issues with the film. Yeah. Um, so I'll go, th- I'll start with maybe some of the positive, yeah. which is... Let's be Koganata, nice. Yeah, he is always good at 
the aesthetic, which makes sense considering, you know, his background, his start doing video essays that examine like cinematography and camera work and things like that. This world that he creates, it is really beautiful. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so lushly green in a way that's like reminiscent of, you know, Station Eleven's take on our post-apocalyptic future. Yeah. There's a lot of greenery. Uh, the homes and the gadgets and the interiors are very sleek and basically like Japanese minimalism. That's more or less the the vibe. For sure. It's like Kyoto cool, you know? Like. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's a beautiful way to put it. Very tasteful. And this is like what our future cities and homes are supposed to look like in this somewhat dystopic future. Mm-hmm. He's really good at framing. Like he knows how to get these really beautiful vignettes that work really well, I think, in the sequences that portray Yang's memory, Mm -hmm. like these few seconds at a time. But I'll I'll say, like, he relies on that a little bit too much, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is not new. I think Columbus also was uh, heavy on the visuals, but that made sense for that kind of setting. I mean, like, I texted you, Pelin, like, there are only so many... Uh, yeah. shots of the this like sunlight scattered on a bed in the corner like yeah. there are at least like three or four of them and I, I was just like do we really need so many of these taking yeah. up your valuable screen time yeah it felt more like an I, I think this is something I said to you it felt like a commercial mm. uh, just uh, or For like, like a, Muji, Muji or yeah, something like that yeah that more than it did uh, which I, I hate when people say that about films sometimes like I think a lot of people said that about Tom Ford's A Single Man and I really disagree with that because i i think it just worked so well it's just in this in this instance it was obviously trying to also say something poignant and i think there are other ways yeah. to do that than just visually you know yeah like it's kind of resting a little bit too much on you know building this this visual language which and like sort of hitting us over the head with it over and over when yeah we we already got it but like also not giving us any dialogue um, yes or action you you have to feed that to the audience every now and again it can't just all be visual and, and again you know we talked about this last week i'm a big fan of uh the unsaid and mm-hmm. trying to communicate the unsaid and you know hiding things from the audience and letting them figure it out but i think this just veered too much into the unsaid part and really really not enough into the said um yeah, yeah. and i'll say that is like sort of a bigger critique i have of the movie which is that well, one, like, I feel like Koganata could do a lot better with a co-writer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But but two, like, the, the main reason I say that is because he is making this movie, like, so pared down, like, quiet, like you said. Yes. It's, it's yeah. very sparse. It's much more gestural, I feel, than actually uh, putting in the work to earn the the sort of moving emotions that mm-hmm. the viewer feels like they should have yeah so he leaves so much in between the lines to the point where like i i read an interview that he did with the verge and literally there are entire parts like biographical details and sort of like geopolitical context like setting of the film that koganata has definitely thought of in great detail like kira's career and also like what happened with china in this movie mm-hmm. but they don't make it into the film like yeah. he he has this entire like uh, background lined up, and they don't make it into the film beyond like a couple of hints that are so thin that I don't think you can like seriously actually yeah. hold those up as uh you know point to them as examples of the world building inside the film. Oh, like they're totally, just yeah. it's basically not there. Yeah, I mean it's a problem when I know more about the film in because of the interviews that he's given mm-hmm. than I do because I watched the 
the film and it's not it's not to say that filmmakers don't give context in interviews it's just that we need him to give us the layup um yeah. in the film and it's just it we were just kind of left with the ball <laughs> to figure out where to throw it next and he i don't know it's just that that reliance on the visuals i think it started irritating me at some point in the film i think we talked about like the conference call set up oh yeah oh my god very like a this kind of uh stark change in just camera aspect ra- yeah aspect ratio of like what's on the screen yeah the setup this like head-on uh look at as well as uh like the color grading and and the, the texture it's 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 quite jarring yeah. and i don't know why he felt the need to delineate it in that sense yeah what did you think about the dialogue <laughs> Um, I thought there was also room for improvement there. I think I'll especially pinpoint the way that Kira and Jake uh, interact with each other. Yeah. And I think this is also partly like a chemistry problem um, mm-hmm. or performance issue. But they just felt like complete strangers and yeah. not like people who have lived together, you know, raised a child together, been in a relationship for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And I know that in the story there, you know, part of this point is that there is some growing distance between them there's a gap there but it still like the the way that people who have been in each other's lives for a long time in intimate ways even if they have a distance between them the way that they talk to each other is completely different from the way that uh these two characters are talking to each other yeah i completely agree with you and i think it's something that really bothered me about columbus too i think i mentioned it where i was just like the dialogue just feels bad and it kind of feels like he doesn't know how to direct actors um Mm. so it's fascinating because you have such two good actors like these two actors are incredible like they Mm. should have fantastic chemistry uh but i found myself like only liking really the scenes where colin farrell was on his own Um, yeah yeah me too because he's my irish king and i'll love Mm -hmm. him forever but like uh Mm -hmm. so he just does a really good job here of of kind of showcasing that melancholy within him totally but yeah i don't know i just i wish i liked this film more because the subject matter the the vibe the the aesthetic details that you know i do appreciate it's just there's too many of them it's it's all right up my alley like this is i'm the target demographic for this kind of movie but yeah um yeah. it just sort of fell flat it yeah. was good in concept flubbed a little bit in the execution yeah and i don't know there's there's a lot of praise going on right now i think some of it is definitely what is that definitely warranted but yeah there is also like kind of a ugh, it, it feels strange to me because yeah I don't know. The way people review um, films that do deal with like saying something about Asian people and I'm uh, other races too, of course, I'm just speaking like as an Asian person who watches mm. and pays attention to a lot of these kind of uh, films and the reception. Uh, the way that people talk about them is uh, often somewhat strange, especially if the film does something as, as this one is doing, saying something about the humanity or interiority of, um, in this case, like a, a Chinese robot. It's almost like that is cover then for a lot of people to to just talk about how moving it is in a sense um, and to not pay that much attention to like the the technical formalities and like details and like structure work that that actually goes into filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all just want better for everybody, you know, like I think Koganada is a very, very talented director. And I think... Mm. You know, what you mentioned about him just needing a writing partner, that is so crucial. It's so yeah. crucial because I don't think he's a writer. I don't, and if he is, I don't think he's a good writer. And I think he needs someone that is very, very good at being able to communicate whatever is going on in his head in terms of like themes, visuals, in a way that feels cohesive. 
And it's not to say that he doesn't deserve praise because of course he does. Um, he's doing something interesting. He's trying and he's like really yeah. shooting for it. And that I think in and of itself is something that should always be celebrated. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that we don't think he should ever make a film again. Like, no, no, way. no, please do. No, like, I do like, like, keep going, brother. like keep I do going. like his body of work, um, despite yeah. some of the very real, uh, issues I have with him. Overall, yeah. like, I'm, excited to see his vision play out on screen totally but, totally yeah he's yeah, very thoughtful I, and that's yeah. like all you can ask for it's just that i think this is just like a perpetual thing with many uh whether it's poc critics or whatever it's just like for us we, we i know it, i think it's fine for to critique because we want better like we want better for everybody we want koganada to be the best director that he can be yeah. Um, but you're you're right. I think there is something interesting <laughs> going on with the feedback with films like these. Yeah. Um, um, and I'll yeah. just say, like, this film is only an hour and a half, which is normally my ideal time, as yeah. I have said many times before. But I totally agree with you in that, you know, either you need to explode it up a little bit, you need to increase the volume of it, um, not literally, but just like what's going on, the, the dynamic aspects of the film, or you need to just... Uh, you need to just cut it short. It could have yeah. been a much tighter, uh, more focused, like one hour short film if you wanted mm-hmm. to maintain that level of quiet contemplation throughout yeah, this. Yeah, totally. Uh, but for like a feature film length, like this did not really work in its favor. Yeah, I've got to just give it a shout out that uh, that Mitski song at the end is great though, I will say. Yeah. And Our what's a- funny Asian is... Asian Queen. <laughs> Asian Queen. And what's funny is when you go on the YouTube of the recording or something, <laughs> like the younger generation that loves her, basically, they were like, oh, what is this from? And someone quoted, oh, she's just doing some film. Like, it's just a, a song for some film. <laughs> like... But yeah, it's it's a good it's a good second shot, I will say. Like he swang big and he he figured it out in some way. So we'll see what you do next, buddy. Yeah, I'm excited for his next film. So for culture this week, we're gonna talk about a little bit of drama that's been happening with the power of the dog. Mm-hmm. So a while back, I think it was on the Mark Marin podcast. Yes, yes. Mr. Sam Elliott decided to weigh in on his thoughts about the Jane Campion film Power of the Dog, which is on Netflix, and you can watch it if you like. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch and a whole bunch of other people. It was nominated for an Oscar. Nominated uh, for an Oscar. Yep, fantastic film. And uh, he decided that it really, I guess, like, I've forgotten what he said, but I think it came down to... Let me pull it up. Yeah, let's pull it up. But my takeaway was that he thinks it's just, like, too gay. Yeah, I think that's a TLDR. That it's not really a Western because it's too gay. Yeah, he called it a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> he also, like, you know, he complimented Jane Campion, but he his main complaint was that he said the film's characters are basically like Chippendales dancers who wear bow ties and not Magels. Mm-hmm. There are all these illusions of homosexuality throughout the movie, like these cowboys are running around in chaps and no shirts. What is this lady from New Zealand doing making a film about the American West. Like, why did she, you know, do it the way she did? Mm. Um, I mean, Sam Elliott is someone who really prides himself on, like, sustaining some sort of, like, the mythos of the American West. Yeah. But this dude is from, like, Sacramento. He's not... He's an actor. He he may have chosen projects that are more cowboy-centered. But yeah, he is, like, really, cast in that. Yeah. But there's not that much that would, like, qualify him to, to say this is, like shit because it doesn't portray cowboys in a certain way the whole thing is funny like i didn't really care too much about it because uh, who cares about what an you yeah. know 
old white guy has to say about anything honestly but what happened it was funny though it was like, funny it's always funny comments when, are funny yeah yeah <laughs> it's always hilarious because you know like i mean it's all stupid right but then when you hear it through the lens of a film <laughs> criticism especially him po- noticing like chaps uh and like not much else that cracked me up because it's like mm-hmm. happy that that's the stay away visual for you <laughs> Yeah, and just like the the headlines everywhere, like Sam Elliott thinks how the dog cowboys are too gay. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, so so that you know that happened in I believe early March, and then in the week since, uh, basically most of the film stars have weighed in. Like Benedict Cumberbatch said some stuff that really cements him as a gay ally, like a LGBTQ king. Like he really um, he talks about acceptance and like masculinity, and that was his response to this. Mm-hmm. Cody Smith McPhee, who is I think like getting like quite a lot of a uh, you know acclaim and like yeah. a- uh, awards for this yeah. his role in this. Mm-hmm. He said like I'm not going to say anything because I'm a mature being and I'm passionate about what I do and I don't really give energy to anything outside of wow, that. Wow, king so, of maturity. Right. Wow. Yes, maturity is just staying out of the fray. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse Plemons recently weighed in. He said it made him laugh. Um, and he said, I know there are different layers to that. Not everyone has to like it. I'll say that. And, and that was, that was that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. So also sort of like staying out of it. But finally, director Jane Campion, she, she weighed in. The on icon. The, yeah. On the red carpet. And she was, her response was just equally, just like just as funny as the, the whole remark that started all of it. So she said, I'm sorry, he was being a little bit of a B-I-T-C-H, and yes, she spelled bitch out rather than say it. <laughs> um, she said of Sam Elliott, he's not a cowboy, he's an actor. Ouch. Um, Period. And then the West is a mythic space, and there's a lot of room in the range, uh, and I think it's a little bit sexist. Yeah. So she covered everything in, in like a succinct uh, three sentences. She cleaned him out, buddy. She sent him out for pasture. <laughs> but I love this because I just want this all the time i want it all the time like just beef, beef between... yeah like i mean the scorsese okay. and uh francis ford coppola versus marvel like superhero movie beef is hilarious and i i hope it never ends <laughs> but i love this like i don't know if it was like something in like the 60s and 70s that happened a lot where it's just like filmmakers just chatting shit about one another just bring it back you know yeah and not just like filmmakers, but a lot of like mm-hmm. public intellectuals, like writers, like it really is something that I think has yeah. died out Everyone's a little too bit. Mature. Um, especially because yeah, they're trying to be too careful. They want to like maintain their image. They if they pick on each other, they want to pick on people who are like a little yeah. bit of an easier target rather than you know yeah. their peers more or less. Uh, it just it's yeah, fun. it's not happening yeah, in the same fun. way. I and think. that's why like when stuff like this happens, mm-hmm. it's fun because it's like yeah, fuck that guy, man. Like, he's a bigot. Call it out. <laughs> Who fucking cares, you know? It doesn't matter that he's uh, not that relevant or whatever, but he said something, and you can clear him, and she cleared him. Uh, I just want more of that, man. Anyway, so uh, yeah. this was fun. Yeah. And we we love gay cowboys. We love gay cowboys. You know? Speaking of gay cowboys, did you see that Pedro Almodovar said that he was going to direct Brokeback Mountain, but he was going to make it too sexy? Like, he was going to have one too many <laughs> sex scenes in it, so then he turned it down. Hilarious. Yeah, I saw that somewhere and I was like, oh, I see. It's actually fr- from news from a while ago, but it's just re- recirculating lately. Yeah. Um, when I read that, I think I saw it on Twitter. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was like, like a, a joke. fake. Yeah. I thought it was a yeah. parody, but it's really a, a fascinating nugget of information. He, I'm reading this IndieWire article that you yeah. found, Paul, and it says, 
Basically, his take on Brokeback Mountain would have been, quote, unquote, uh, more sex, more sex. Um, That's (laughs) That's that's a quote. (laughs) (laughs) But it just, they couldn't, whoever, they, the powers that be, the the studios, the execs, they they couldn't let it happen. It's like a sliding doors version of whatever that film is, like the alternate universe of Brokeback Mountain, like is Pedro Alvarez. I will say, I rewatched Brokeback Mountain a couple weeks ago. Did it hold up? Yeah, dude, to the point where... It is one of the most depressing films I think I have ever watched. Ugh. Like, it completely ruined oh me God. for the rest of the day. It's gorgeous. It's that's beautiful. Why I, I, that's why I can't rewatch, I don't think. It's just, it's too depressing. And, like, I think a lot of people watched it when they were much younger and they couldn't really understand, like, the, the way that repression is communicated yeah. and how much, like, love and affection that these two men have for each other. And you watch it now and you see it. And it just makes it all the more heartbreaking. <laughs> like I straight up, I, I was in such a good mood and I watched it and I just was depressed for the rest of the night. So it definitely holds up. Yeah. Do not get me wrong. Um, but <laughs> it would have been it would have been fun to see Jake and Heath, you know, with just a little really, bit like, more skin. Go at it. Yeah. Would have been yeah. nice. Oh, well. In another in another timeline. In well, maybe world, in 10 years time when they run exists. out of things to remake, they can remake Brokeback Mountain. Oh, right. That is probably going <laughs> to yeah. happen. Yeah, very interesting things going on just surrounding the power of the dog. And it only makes the power of the dog stronger and more powerful. Indeed, indeed. So that's it for us this week. If you are watching anything that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to our fantastic Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Maybe tell a friend about us. That would be really nice. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and we will uh, see you next week. Bye. Criticism Instead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Jijan. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu. 